Hello. This is episode three of the podcast called Blood and Rain. I'm your host, Arthur Dane. Steven Spielberg's 2012 film Lincoln is dramatization at its best. It shows the president, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, trying to make good on the claim in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. What more praiseworthy cause could a hedgehog possibly pursue? But to abolish slavery, Lincoln must move the 13th Amendment through a fractious House of Representatives, and here his maneuvers are as foxy as they come. He resorts to deals, bribes, flattery, armed twisting, and outright lies, so much that the movie reeks visually, if not literally, of smoke-filled rooms. When today is Stevens played by Tommy Lee Jones, asks the president when he can reconcile such a noble claim with such malodorous methods, Lincoln recalls what his youthful years as a surveyor taught him. A compass will point you to true north from where you're standing. But it's got no advice about the swamps and deserts and chasms that you'll encounter along the way. If in pursuit of your destination, you plunge ahead heedless of obstacles and achieve nothing more than to sink in a swamp, what's the use of knowing true north? I had this spooky sense when I saw the film that Berlin was sitting next to me, and at the conclusion of this scene, leaned over to whisper triumphantly, You see? Lincoln knows when to be a hedgehog in consulting the compass, and when to be a fox in skirting the swamp. That was a recollection from a book written in 2018 called On Grand Strategy by a Yale history professor and Cold War expert by the name of James Gaddis. Gaddis recalls watching Steven Spielberg's Lincoln, filmed in the year 2012, and being reminded of his then-past friend named Irving Berlin. Now, Irving Berlin, a good friend of his, wrote a book as a meditation on the Renaissance scholar Erasmus. With Erasmus's two concepts of the hedgehog and the fox. Erasmus cited that the hedgehog is more involved with large singular ideas, whereas the fox is more involved with many smaller, more detailed, potentially conflicting ideas. Berlin then would play a little game, asking what authors would be hedgehogs and what authors would be foxes. If so, Plato, Dante, Dostoevsky, and Nietzsche would all be hedgehogs. Aristotle, Shakespeare, Goethe, Pushkin, and Joyce were obviously foxes. So was Berlin, who distrusted most big things like logical positivism, but felt fully at ease with smaller ones. Berlin essentially published this little game of his in a book in 1951. And Gaddis, being the expert on the Cold War, the nuances, the long-term strategies, the crises, and other overlooked details of the Cold War, 
in addition to having these sort of conversations with his good friend Berlin on the concept of the hedgehog and the concept of the fox in tandem with watching a film like Lincoln began to postulate what makes a great grand strategist. Now the text on grand strategy presents the case of his belief that a great grand strategist has both mastered the way of the hedgehog and the way of the fox. To support this, he then cites the great F. Scott Fitzgerald in helping base his claim. Fitzgerald's test for first-rate intelligence from 1936 is as follows by direct quote. The ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. Essentially, the ability to constantly live and carry out the balance of opposites in philosophy. Now, when you start to think about, and Gaddis mentions this in the book, but if you just stop to think yourself about what are the potential pitfalls for those inclined to the way of the fox in grand strategy, it becomes very simple to figure out. If the fox deals with many nuanced, smaller, more detailed ideas, the fox isn't going to spend much time in crafting one grand idea, one grand vision, one grand strategy. So while the fox is proficient in the low range and the mid range of carrying out concepts, carrying out strategies, the fox never reaches the upper echelon. The fox never thinks to craft a grand vision or a grand strategy. So therefore, the fox typically will not become a grand strategist. On the other side of things, the hedgehog, the strategist who's more inclined to large singular ideas, large grand visions, large grand strategies, but not well versed in analyzing details and smaller ideas along the way, creates a very large margin for error, a large margin for catastrophe potentially. Now, two of the main examples that Gaddis uses to stack up to each other are that of Napoleon and that of Abraham Lincoln. Now, Napoleon had essentially gained control of continental Europe throughout the many wars of coalitions within the Napoleonic Wars, and he amassed a fighting force of over 600,000 Frenchmen and French allies, which consisted of Austrians and various other Germanic-aligned peoples. Now, to put pressure on the British Empire, Napoleon decided in 1812 that he would lead an invasion into Russia within the summer. Now, to supply a force of 600,000 men would require quite a bit of food, quite a bit of shelter, and quite a bit of general supplies. Now, in a densely populated Central Europe where he typically waged war, being in the Germanic states, being in the lowlands of the Netherlands and Belgium and Spain, these were very densely populated 
and densely packed areas in terms of agriculture and of livestock and general supplies. So it was very easy for Napoleon's forces to live off the land for lack of a better term. This made the logistical nightmare of supplying a grand army with all that it needed greatly minimized. However, when you move into a far less densely populated area in a much larger landscape, that is Russia, that is Eastern Europe once you get past what is present-day Ukraine, Belarus, and Poland, you start to deal with land that is far less densely populated. You start to deal with land that has far less resources at hand. So the strategy of living off the land becomes less and less valid the further you get into the landscape of Russia. Now, the Russian people would not fully engage Napoleon's Grand Army. Its various commanders would do battle with Napoleon, less so in battles, but more so in skirmishes, with these sort of hit-and-run guerrilla tactics. And therefore, Napoleon was left chasing a Russian army deeper and deeper into Russian territory, because he was seeking the full decisive victory, both for the sense of expanding Napoleonic rule, but it was more so the fact that Napoleon was trying to tighten the grip over his already had possessions, and the areas of his allies where he held current dominion at the time. For in the three years since the last war of coalitions, Napoleon's power had diminished a bit. The sort of inspiration that Napoleon carried out to the people of his empire was also beginning to diminish. So this was sort of the only way Napoleon knew how to tighten his grip was with through more military success instead of diplomacy, and this was ultimately his downfall. So Napoleon chased the Russian army further and further into Russia, and the invasion began in the summer, but these skirmishes and this enormous amount of land to cover saw that Napoleon was getting deeper and deeper into fall and then winter within Russia. Now, the bulk of Napoleon's forces being French and being of Germanic heritage and some Spanish heritage were more used to temperate climate where one could grow wine. Now they're getting to harsher landscape and harsher climate and a harsher time of the year. After many skirmishes and lacking decisive victory, Napoleon decided on a grand strategy, decided on a bold vision. Napoleon decided that he would have a blitz on Moscow. And by having a blitz on Moscow, that would signify, that would confirm, rather, French victory and Napoleon's dominion over the Russian Empire. However, Napoleon underestimated not only the landscape involved for the sake of his logistics, he, also, he underestimated Russian winter in general, but he also underestimated and most likely did not bother to think about the Russian psyche when it comes to willpower to survive. The same landscape that Napoleon, the same weather and the climate 
that Napoleon underestimated was the same climate that hardened the Russian people and hardened the Russian people's will to survive for centuries. So Napoleon arrived in Moscow uncontested. The local city authorities handed the city over to him. And the Russians burned Moscow, the bulk of it. They burned the crops surrounding the city. And the military forces fled into the depths of the Russian steppes. Now Napoleon was deep into enemy territory, with a city that meant nothing. With a city that did not mean victory. It is December with a fighting force of 600,000 men. Not enough food to feed them. And they're being caught in the dead of harsh winter, so they're not able to leave. The estimations of what this did to Napoleon's fighting force vary from scaling down from 600,000 to 90,000, and some estimations show the numbers scaling down from a fighting force of over 600,000 to 27,000. So the complete decimation of Napoleon's fighting force. Napoleon was a hedgehog. And being bold in developing these large forces to attack these large nations to attack... To, to seize dominion over a large empire. But effectively double Napoleon's empire in size with victory over Russia. However, he was not a fox. He did not analyze the details. He did not analyze the details of not being able to use the same strategy for supplying his men as he used in Central Europe. He underestimated the detail that the Russians would potentially pay guerrilla tactics to drag Napoleon deeper and deeper into dark winter, into dark waters of war. He underestimated the detail, he overlooked the detail of the Russian psyche and the Russian will to survive, the Russian will to sacrifice the icon of Moscow, to lose temporarily, to win in the long run. And that was ultimately his demise. He will be later defeated by the Duke of Wellington twice to end the Napoleonic era. Now an apples-to-apples comparison to Abraham Lincoln, they're both hedgehogs in terms of grand strategy, circling back to the original passage cited. Abraham Lincoln had the grand strategy, the grand vision of abolishing slavery. He knew that to be a moral true north. But he understood that to get there, to get the votes in the House of Representatives, and for those of you international listeners, Abraham Lincoln was the United States' 16th president. He was a wartime president during the American Civil War and led the United States Army, the Union Army and its armed forces, to defeat the Confederate States of America in their open rebellion in the name of their quote-unquote, rights to own slaves for the sake of their agricultural pursuits. And he is the man who ended slavery through the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution. Now, ending slavery at a federal level was going to take quite a bit of votes in the United States House of Representatives. So, as 
Gaddis mentioned from the portrayal of the movie, the portrayal of Lincoln by Daniel Day-Lewis in the film, that Lincoln deal, uh, resorted to deals, bribes, flattery, arm-twisting, and outright lies so much that the movie reeks of smoke-filled rooms. These are the details. Lincoln didn't just naively say, oh, this is the right thing to do. So the grand vision will essentially manifest itself. No. Lincoln understood that he needed to convince men who would be opposed or have some self-interest to hold out until it was met. He understood these details. He was a fox, and he carried these out. Successful in the realm of the fox. Now, why do I bring up Gaddis's text on grand strategy? Why do I bring up the balance of opposites? Why do I bring up grand strategy itself having a grand vision and the details below? Well, the text has been lauded by many critics and fellow academics as essential for any person about to engage in a role of grand leadership. So for those of you who are potentially listening and are currently or about to be leaders of many men of an organization that has many moving parts and many subtle nuances, I would highly recommend reading this text. But I find that this text has a much more interesting application to the individual man. Now, I've mentioned other content creators in past podcasts, the past two, and I mentioned The Invincible Way, and The Invincible Way had a little musing on his Instagram story that I liked very much. He labeled the idea of the jack-of-all-trades and the master of none a western psyop. That one man can only master one thing in his life. One skill, one knowledge base is absolutely asinine. They're the words of a man without work ethic. They're the words of a man without conviction. They're the words of a lazy man. There have been renaissance men of the past who have mastered many skills. They've mastered many bases of knowledge. However, it took an immense work ethic. And it took a grand strategy. A prime example is Thomas Jefferson. In his 20s, he had a regimen of 16-hour days where he'd study many subjects. He would block hour blocks and two-hour blocks of study. And he would take periodic breaks to do calisthenics and to run three miles up and downhill at a local park. Rather, it was more likely a local meadow given the state of the terrain of the United States of America which were the British colonies at that time. Now this echoes episode 2 of the podcast and Henry Rollins putting in 8 to 12 hour shifts, many a time double shifts, where he'd be creating massive amounts of his own original content and he would take periodic breaks whenever the record he was playing would finish to do calisthenics and to do 
long distance cardiovascular endurance. This is no coincidence. To be a renaissance man, you must involve the mind, the body, and the spirit. You must have long hours, an immense work ethic, and you must have a grand strategy. I'll give you an example for myself. I'm currently writing a novel. I'm currently writing a myth, in fact. The deadline I've given myself is March 20th, the first day of spring. That's the deadline for the rough draft. So on a scale of months, that's my strategy at that level. In terms of my grand strategy for the year involving this novel, I plan for it to be published by the beginning of third quarter of this year. So that involves months of editing, months of proofreading, dealing with an artist to create suitable cover art, speaking with multiple business partners about promotion, potentially speaking with a traditional publishing company, That's a next step up in terms of layers of grand strategy. I was speaking of my month strategies in terms of writing the rough draft. Now I'm speaking of quarter strategies. To give you another example, switching gears as a renaissance man, I'm in preparation for a tournament in the summer. I have a six-month training cycle consisting of three smaller training cycles consisting of different splits for training sessions per day per week and per day there are many things I want to accomplish I want to be a world champion fighter I want to be an all time great fighter I want to be an all time great writer I have my education to keep in mind my diet of reading, the logistics of grocery shopping and cooking for optimum nutrition, the logistics of sleep. Now there's this immense work ethic I mentioned before and this sort of immense fighting spirit to get things done. However, if I just woke up and said, <clears throat> I'm going to train my ass off and I'm going to write my ass off and I'm going to get to where I need to go. There's no vision of where I'm trying to go. I'm doing the acts necessary to be the man I want to become. However, I'm potentially flying I'm potentially flying blind as I could go months without realizing that there's a potential roadblock long term in the future for publishing a book that I hadn't thought about. I hadn't craft that would be a scenario of me not crafting a suitable grand strategy. A grand plan for how I'm going to get to where I want to go. Planning for the years. Planning for the months. Planning for the weeks. Planning for the days. Planning for the hours. Planning for the minutes. The minutes and hours being the suitable blocks where I can apply this work ethic of I'm going to train my ass off. Or of I'm going to write my ass off. Now. Grand strategy is a concept that involves the balance of 
two other concepts. Two concepts that aren't his own. The concept of the hedgehog and the concept of the fox. The hedgehog being involved with singular grand ideas, the fox being involved with many smaller ideas potentially conflicting. As an engine to implement grand strategy on a day-to-day scale, we're now speaking in terms of the day-to-day, the hour-to-hour, the minute-to-minute. How does one conduct oneself? How does one carry out the day-to-day? What is the general demeanor? What is the default mindset? How does one endure? How does one execute the tasks of the day suitably, without stress? I offer you two, in some ways similar, but in many ways different concepts and mindsets. Now, this part of the podcast is actually based on an article I was writing for an Instagram page and blog that fosters European culture. And my stance in terms of preserving European culture is it should be preserved at all costs. However, I do not believe that this has to be the expense of others. I do not believe that there needs to be a constant combative nature between those of European descent... And those of other descent. My stance is together, but not the same. I should have the right to, let's say, me being of Spanish, French, Italian, and Basque ethnicity. I should have the right to say, no, I would rather bring more Basque people into this world to preserve the Basque ethnicity. I also believe in the right to say, no, I actually want to marry someone of Asian descent, someone of African descent, someone of South American indigenous descent. I believe in strong cultural identity and strong ethnic identity. But I also believe that there should be strong relations from cultural identity and ethnic identity to other respective cultural and ethnic identities. Now, I was commissioned to write this article for this page of European culture, and I joined a private group chat of many of its followers, and I found a group chat with a horrendously racist nature. And I saw the creator of this page doing nothing about it. And that's certainly his right, at least in the United States of America. However, 
It is also my right to reject this racist nature and reject his dealing with it. So I pulled myself from commissioning this article for his page. I have no tolerance for racism. I have no tolerance for this idea of ethnic superiority, this idea of ethnic supremacy. Strong ethnic identity, yes. And strong inter-ethnic identity relations, absolutely. Cultural exchanges, absolutely. Some of my favorite things in life are cultural exchanges. Living in England, I met many good friends of Nigerian descent, of Pakistani descent, of Thai descent. And we got to share the subtle nuances of our culture. This is a beautiful thing. This is a beautiful way of learning from one another. Now, I understand that there are some malicious attempts by certain groups to deteriorate ethnic and cultural identity, and these are obviously nefarious, and these I am wholeheartedly against. However, we mustn't jump to the other extreme of horrendous racism. This I have no patience for either. Together, and strong within identity, individually, but together, but not the same, Exchanging, admiring one another, learning from one another. How can we learn from one another if we not know who we are initially, however? This is the balance. This is the balance. This is the moral highest ground on the matter. And this is an idea of which I am unshakable on. So I obviously pulled myself from writing this article for this page. However, this is an article of European culture and European philosophy and concept that I felt shouldn't go to waste. Being a page of European culture, I had to take two European ideas. I took the ideas of Greco-Roman Stoicism, I'm sure many of you are familiar with. And I superimposed another concept, another modern, another concept postulated in modern times, but I superimposed it on the Germanic tribes and Viking peoples of Northern Europe. The article was titled, The Greco-Roman Stoic Baseline and the Viking Override. The Viking Anti-Fragile Override, rather. Now, in terms of grand strategy, in terms of scaling, in terms of the upper echelons of strategy, planning for the long term, planning for the grand vision, one can look to Marcus Aurelius. To quote Marcus Aurelius from his compilation of his journals titled Meditations, when you wake up in the morning, tell yourself, 
The people I deal with today will be meddling, ungrateful, arrogant, dishonest, jealous, and surly. They are like this because they can't tell good from evil. But I have seen the beauty of good and the ugliness of evil, and have recognized that the wrongdoer has a nature related to my own. Not of the same blood and birth, but the same mind, and possessing a share of the divine. And so none of them can hurt me. No one can implicate me in ugliness. Nor can I feel angry at my relative or hate him. We were born to work together like feet, hands, and eyes, like two rows of teeth, upper and lower. To obstruct each other is unnatural. To feel anger at someone, to turn your back on him, these are unnatural. Now Marcus Aurelius was a Roman emperor and Marcus Aurelius was a Stoic. Now, there are going to be many of you listeners who have dabbled in Stoicism. And in the past five years, you've seen the renaissance of Greco-Roman Stoicism, whether in the form of newsletters, Instagram pages, podcasts like this one, this sort of minimalist, unshakable wisdom of the Greeks like Zeno and Romans like Epictetus. It's being leaned on the postmodern man seeking traditional masculinity as the largest bedrock of the past for a shot at a brighter future. It is very simple to see why this is the case. From a grand perspective, 75% of Western law can be traced back to Christian morality, and some would argue pagan morality, with the remaining 25% consisting of the logical reasoning of the great Stoics. On the small scale of the daily struggles of the individual, Stoicism is the most practical of what were the, called the five schools of Athens. Now, what were the five schools of Athens? Basically, five schools of philosophy by many great well-versed renaissance men of their time. Stoicism promotes a steady state of being rooted in calm logic and detachment. Zeno, the philosophy's founder, developed this school of thought within the schools of Athens through reading about Socrates in the libraries of Athens after he was shipwrecked there. His initial choice of reacting calmly to misfortune and adapting to his given circumstances to read their benefits was the foundation for the Stoics of Rome and their applications of this grounded way of life. Seneca the Younger, one of Rome's wealthiest men, a playwright and advisor to the emperor, would regularly schedule days of poverty when he'd wear the garb of poor commoners and eat scant food in order to strengthen his muscles of acceptance and adaptation. Through exposing himself to conditions feared by most prominent men and constantly asking himself, was this the condition I constantly feared, Seneca was impenetrable to the problems that rose in regular life, and he had felt much greater stressors. This led to Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius was a Roman emperor. Marcus Aurelius had heeded the wisdom of Zeno. He used Stoic ideology to be an emperor of Rome while fighting wars and losing children of, own, children of his own to wars he was waging. Stoicism is essentially a culmination of an appeal to logic, an appeal to calm.
and an appeal to reason. It's to be, as the word entails, stoic in the face of danger. It's to not get too emotional. It's to be able to recognize the ups and downs of life, the emotional nature of life, and detach oneself from it. It's to see, as Marcus Aurelius said, the beauty of good and the ugliness of evil, and remain centered, to remain unshakable, to remain stoic. Now, how does stoicism apply back to grand strategy? Now, this applies primarily to the mid-range and upper echelon of executing a grand strategy. To to craft a grand strategy, one must be stoic in nature from the get-go. To reason whether this is a grand strategy worth having or not. A grand strategy worth crafting or not. That is the stoic realm. That is stoicism applied to the highest realm of grand strategy. In the mid-range, when one carries out a month, a quarter at a time, or perhaps a week in the mid-range. One must be stoic to not let the misfortunes, the changes of fortune, to deter him from one's grand strategy, from one's grand plan, one's grand goal. For example, I'm training for a tournament. A good friend of mine comes into town. A friend of mine I have not seen. He asks to hang out on a night that I'm supposed to go to sparring. And sparring is vital to preparation to fight in the ring. The stoic response would be to remember the grand strategy. Would be to remember that, yes, perhaps, perhaps I could skip sparring. I've been sparring well lately. And I can go and hang out with this person who's in town. During this time of sparring. I could emotionally jump at the opportunity. But this slowly deteriorates the validity of the grand strategy. That's a detail that becomes ignored. The detail of being executing, day in and day out, the contents of the grand strategy. Being resistant to randomness. Being resistant to the changes of fortune. This is a mindset that helps execute grand strategy. This is a mindset that is resistant to emotions, resistant to fortune, resistant to randomness. The operative word being resistant. So therefore, the grand strategy can manifest properly. The grand plan can manifest properly. It won't sacrifice itself on the whim of excitement, on the whim of novelty, on the whim of sadness. I could very easily say, 
for argument's sake, um, my fiance and I broke up. Oh, I'm not going to train because my fiance and I broke up. No, I'm going to train regardless. That is the stoic mindset. It is being resistant for the greater good, and in this case, the grand strategy for this resistance to all things random, emotional, and in change of fortune for the sake of executing and manifesting the grand strategy in place. Marcus Aurelius was losing children on the battlefield, but Marcus Aurelius could not afford to be emotional when making decisions, making grand decisions, involving the tide of the wars he was waging as the Emperor of Rome. So he had to be stoic in receiving this news. He could not get emotional. He could not make emotional decisions that would endanger the soldiers of Rome and endanger the grand strategy. He could not get emotional and go inward and wallow to the point where Rome did not have a leader and there's a power vacuum. And now there's discord and disarray internally to match the discord of war. No, he was stoic. He was resistant to all emotional things. Even the pain of losing children for the sake of the grand strategy. Now, What happens when things truly do go wrong? What happens in a more positive sense when we're presented with opportunities that could be highly beneficial? But that could possibly deter from the grand strategy in place. How do we take advantage of these opportunities? And for the former, what do we do when things go wrong? How is this applied back to executing a grand strategy? How would the fox deal with the details at hand to balance the hedgehog's grand strategy in place and stoicism resistant to most things deal with this randomness? In the article, I wrote about the Vikings and the Germanic tribes, and that their nature was ultimately what one would call anti-fragile. The concept of anti-fragility is a concept presented in a 2012 book written by an academic from Lebanon named Nassim Taleb. Nassim Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile, presents the idea that there are things that are truly the opposite of fragile and that words like resistance or stoic or robust are not indeed the opposite of fragile because they're only resisting chaos, they're resisting stress, they're resisting randomness. They're not fragile to it, they're not crumbling to these aspects. However, they're also not growing from them either. So, to say resistant, to say stoic, to say robust in the face of 
pressure, in the face of randomness, in the face of chaos. It's to not truly be the opposite of fragile. It's to be in the center. It's to be neutral. So Nassim Taleb speaks of things and people that are anti-fragile. Things that grow from chaos and disorder. Things that grow from randomness. That take the opportunity at hand and violently benefit from it. To quote Taleb, Further, my characterization of a loser is someone who, after making a mistake, doesn't introspect, doesn't exploit it, feels embarrassed and defensive rather than enriched with a new piece of information, and tries to explain why he made the mistake rather than moving on. These types often consider, consider themselves the quote-unquote victims of some large plot, a bad boss, or bad weather. Finally, a thought. He who has never shined, and ne never sinned rather, and less reliable than he who has only sinned once. And someone who has made plenty of errors, though never the same error more than once, is more reliable than someone who has never made any. Anti-fragility is beyond resilience or robustness. The resilient resists shocks and stays the same. The anti-fragile gets better. Some things benefit from shocks. They thrive and grow when exposed to volatility, randomness, disorder, and stressors, and love, adventure, risk, and uncertainty. The biologist and intellectual E.O. Wilson was once asked what represented the most hindrance to the development of children. His answer was the soccer mom. He did not use the notion of the Procrustean bed, but he outlined it perfectly. His argument is that they repress children's natural biophilia, their love of living things. But the problem is more general. Soccer moms try to eliminate the trial and error, the anti-fragility from children's lives, move them away from the ecological, and transform them into nerds, working in pre-existing, in parentheses, soccer mom-compatible maps of reality. Good students, but nerds. That is, they are like computers, except slower. Further, they are now totally untrained to handle ambiguity. As a child of Civil War, I believe in structured learning. Provided we have the right type of rigor. We need randomness, mess, adventures, uncertainty, self-discovery, near-traumatic episodes, and all those things that make life worth living compared to the structured, fake, and ineffective life of an empty suit CEO with a preset schedule and an alarm clock. Now, in many ways, this is the opposite of Stoicism. It is similar to Stoicism in that Stoicism does welcome these changes of fortune, as Marcus Aurelius stated. However, it takes it a step further. It's not only resistant to it, it grows from these changes of fortune. It grows from these random opportunities, from randomness itself. Now, how does this circle back to grand strategy? Now, this is very clearly more in line with that of the fox. The hedgehog would see these stressors, would see randomness, would see weather as listed and anti-fragility. 
as things that are the opposite of the grand strategy. You would see these things and wouldn't know what to do. This is That would be the response of a Xerxes. That would be the response of a Napoleon. It wouldn't adapt. The fox would be able to handle these things in much more efficient fashion. So why do I bring up the Vikings? Why do I bring up the Germanic tribes? Now, the Vikings and Germanic tribes had much more simpler goals than the Romans. The Romans, like Marcus Aurelius, were trying to expand an empire. They were trying to make an empire far grander and far greater than the previous generation's iteration. That should be the goal. This is a long-term grand strategy. An idea that endured many generations and outlived many emperors and outlived many ages. The empire requires order, requires grand strategy, requires more neutral efforts, requires more resistance, requires more focus on the task at hand. The task at hand is expanding the empire. The grand strategy at hand is making Rome the greatest empire known to mankind. The grand strategy in place is to build aqueducts. It's to expand well beyond the reaches of northern Europe. However, a grand strategist, and in terms of being a grand strategist in your own life, one must look at one more people, the Vikings and the Germanic tribes of northern Europe, the anti-fragile, those who are not seeking to build an empire, they thrive on randomness. Vikings would see a new village to raid, and they would seize the opportunity. This wasn't part of the plan, but there wasn't much of a plan to begin with. We're going to seize all of that village's resources. We're not expecting to live long, and I'm not as well versed as someone like Oaks and Oaths or Forrest Munden in terms of the lore of Valhalla, but from my very, very limited understanding in performing a play based on the prose Edda, that the goal was to die gloriously on the battlefield. To reach Valhalla. So they would welcome danger, they would welcome randomness, they would welcome new opportunities. Their essence as a culture, their essence as Vikings, and the same can be said for the Germanic tribes that Caesar fought. Their essence is anti-fragile. They thrived on randomness. They thrived on new stresses. When Rome came marching north, there was a new fight for them. They thrived on this. The only thing they had to lose were their homes, but they didn't have a grand strategy in place that was delicate and required much nuance and much detail and much planning. They were able to live in the now. They weren't living in the months, the years, the weeks, or the quarters, or the decades, anything of that nature. They were living in the, in the days, in the minutes, in what was right in front of them. And that in itself is anti-fragile. Not worrying about the long term is indeed anti-fragile. Now, I have listed a number of concepts. I've spoken about my article. I've spoken about the balance of opposites. I've spoken about grand strategy applying to both leaders who are about to lead large organizations or lead a large amount of people. 
I've spoken about grand strategy applying to becoming a renaissance man. I've spoken about it in my own life. Why am I tossing all these concepts at once? Well, first of all, that's a muscle to cultivate. That's a muscle to grow, to juggle a bunch of different concepts. But I'm here to offer you tonight, in this third episode of the Blood and Rain podcast, what I believe to be a phenomenal balance of opposites in executing your daily life as a man and executing your grand strategies to becoming the greatest version of yourself, a renaissance man. I've spoken of times where in my life, when I specifically when I moved out, where I was looking at just what was right in front of me, it was anti-fragile. I remember, I remember seething with this strength, seething with this preparation, no matter what life was going to throw at me, I was going to take it and grow from it. But then over time, I started to see, it was like, okay, well, where am, where am I trying to go with this? I become a bartender now, now what? I'm going to train at this gym now, what? what's my goal? When do I want to be an amateur world champion? When do I want to be signed by Glory Kickboxing? When do I want to make a transition in mixed martial arts? Oh, I'm writing poems now, but when am I going to put this in a book of poetry to be published? I was lacking grand strategy. I was lacking vision. I was lacking stoicism for the sake of long-term achievement. The fox can't live without the hedgehog. The hedgehog can't live without the fox. To be the greatest version of yourselves, men. To be the finest iteration of yourself. A renaissance man. I believe that the baseline I present to you today. The baseline default setting should be that of a stoic. This is not a new idea. One should be detached to most randomness. One should be detached to most occurrences. One should be detached to tragedy and hardship. For if we grow too emotional, we can destroy ourselves. And those leaning on us as men, as truly strong, traditionally masculine men, those leaning on us, will be failed by us because we'll be making emotional decisions and we'll be wrapped up in our own minds. We'll neglect our discipline, we'll neglect our daily duty, and long-term plans, long-term grand strategies will begin to wither. So we must be resistant to randomness, we must be resistant to emotion, resistant to the change of fortune, and march on forward, no matter what, that we will successfully complete our mission, successfully become the greatest versions of ourselves, successfully become renaissance men. However, I said that's the default setting. The default setting is that of a Greco-Roman Stoic. The override, the 25% of the time to the 75% of the default Stoicism, the override is the anti-fragility of the Vikings. Being stoic and being analytical and being detached, you'll be able to recognize when we hit massive hardship. I'll give you an example. The gym's closed due to coronavirus. And I'm unable to train with weights. I'm unable to spar. 
the man being wrapped up in stoicism 100% of the time will be mourning a grand strategy. The anti-fragile Viking will do what Jaco says and say, good. And you'll seize that opportunity to say, well, now's the time to train cardiovascular endurance from the standpoint of running. Now's the time to train muscle endurance in the form of calisthenics. Now it's now is the time to train the mind. Now is the time to read more. Now is the time to study film. Now is the time to study the great fights. Now is the time to study new techniques. Now is the time to shadow box new techniques. To apply them to the arsenal. That is the anti-fragile response. Growing from randomness. Growing from misfortune. Rather the changes of fortune. If I go about my week. And I have sparring that day. But I get a phone call saying. A friend of mine wants to introduce me to a potential agent. To sign me as a fighter. Or a potential agent to... Get my book published. Am I going to say, no, no, I have sparring tonight. No, thank you. I'm going to say, oh, okay. Absolutely, I'll be right there. I'll weigh the, the, the weight of the opportunity. I'll weigh the severity of the opportunity. That's a positive piece of randomness, potentially. And I'm not going to let that go to waste. I'm not going to let that pass me by. I'm not going to let that opportunity pass me by in the name of, oh no, I'm sticking to my grand strategy. Well, that could also improve your situation and therefore adjust your grand strategy or speed up the grand strategy to achieve these set goals, these milestones, sooner than you thought. You're not going to say no to these opportunities because you're sticking to the plan. There are times to sacrifice the plan. There are times in training, for example, to throw away the regimen altogether. When you're checking in with yourself and you're saying, I'm going through the motions. I need to connect to the visceral chaotic nature of combat. I need to connect mentally to that before going back to the regimen. I'll make up the time. I'll adjust the plan accordingly. For this 25% of the time, I'll be anti-fragile. I'll seize the opportunity. I won't stay there. I won't stay in this world of randomness and therefore actually truly sacrifice the long-term plan. For, the, for that given set of time, that given window of, of set circumstances, of random circumstances that have presented themselves, I'm going to make the most out of them as the override. And then I'm going to return to the baseline of stoicism, return to the grand strategy, return to the grand plan. This is the balance of opposites that will bring many men success. Seizing the opportunities worth seizing. Growing from misfortune in all forms. but still manifesting the highest goals. To all of you listening, I implore you, do not settle for anything than the greatest, highest 
version of yourself. It's not a duty to what I'm saying on a podcast. It's a duty to yourself. It's a duty to your country. It's a duty to your fellow men, your ancestors, and your children, and all your descendants after your children. To your wife, to your parents, to your community. It's your duty as a man. Don't do this because some guy on a podcast is saying so. Perhaps you will iterate on what I'm saying and find and craft an even greater balance of opposites. But what I have found after much meditation and much writing to be the greatest version of yourself, the highest version, the Renaissance man. Be a grand strategist. Be a stoic. 75% of the time within being that grand strategist and 25% of the time be truly viscerally, chaotically anti-fragile. Now, as usual, I have a Q&A each week. I go on my Instagram story and my Telegram channel. And I have you submit questions. So let's dive right in there. Number one, who is your favorite philosopher and or school of philosophy and why? Well, that's pretty easy to tell at this point. <laughs> I, uh, it would be the Stoics. Specifically, Marcus Aurelius. I love Seneca quite a bit. I love Seneca's letters. However... To be a man of such power and execute his duty accordingly and think that he is no greater than any other, any other man and constantly reflect and constantly check in with himself and constantly adjust in a situation of such high pressure of being a Roman emperor. I have to go with Marcus Aurelius. It's, it's a cliche answer, but there's a reason it's a cliche. Plain and simple. Number two, what do you view as the main benefits of immersing yourself in different cultures and why? Uh, this circles back to sort of my little statement on cultural exchanges. I've only lived in a different country um, for long periods of time once. I lived in England for a long time. And I, I, did, live in, I did live on the East Coast in New York City for roughly six months. And I did get to experience parts of Spain for weeks and months at a time. So I guess, I guess that counts towards this. What I view as the main benefits, um, it's sort of this mental, anthropological form of Christopher Columbus saying bravery is burning the bridges. Like, there's no, there, there's no cultural exchange. Like, I don't, if, I, if I'm here in California and I go to the predominantly Mexican neighborhood, or the predominantly Vietnamese neighborhood, I don't just, like, go straight back to, you know, this sort of neutral American neighborhood. You don't get to do that when you're in another country. You, you have no choice but full immersion. And what's beautiful about that as well, it becomes a cultural exchange both consciously and subconsciously when, they, when foreigners, or when you're the foreigner, when locals find out you a foreigner in their country, Many a time they'll 
ask you about where you're from and ask you what you find to be different and they'll sort of give you a crash course on what to expect. But subconsciously, you'll start to see the little subtle nuances, the subtle details that you forget about. Little pieces of art here and there, little different customs, different sized paper. The smells, the, the other sort of sensory experiences that you get from being in another country. Immersing yourself in a different culture is the only way, in my opinion, to truly uncover the essence and then truly uncover something that was outside of your frame of reference and then truly grow your frame of reference and grow as a man and grow in perspective. Myself, I love to go native. Now, when I lived in England, there were times where I felt a bit homesick for California. And for me, that came in the form of me going to Chinatown. And Chinatown being the sort of general, really Asian town. And eating Japanese food and eating Vietnamese food because I grew up with these things. In terms of eating Mexican food, well, Mexican food in England, forget it. That's what I did when I was homesick. But for the most part... I immerse myself in English concepts. I immerse myself in the literature. I immerse myself by walking in the local parks, by people watching, by seeing the way grocery stores were laid out, by seeing greetings, by seeing what made people feel awkward, by seeing what people valued. I can only do that subconsciously when I'm always immersed in it. I can't do that when I'm sort of just studying the culture. You can study till kingdom come, but you won't truly know it until you immerse it. That's the benefit of immersing yourself in different cultures. And if you don't do that in your life at all, to me personally, you haven't lived. Saying, oh, I just stayed in this town the whole life. I'm proud to be American. That's great. Be proud to be American. Be proud of your home. I'm not saying don't be. But if you're not immersing yourself in other cultures, you're living a dull life. You're living a limited life. You're living, to me, an unfulfilled life. That's that's a matter of opinion, but that's that's my view on the benefit of immersing yourself in different cultures. Number four, sorry, number three, technique of removing a head off of a body with just bare hands. Well, you're going to need some grip strength to do that. I'm not going to speak of a technique in detail on this podcast. Um... If you're really looking for that level of hand-to-hand combat in real-life situations, you would learn how to snap someone's neck first and then be able to pull the head right off. That's going to take a considerable amount of grip strength, so I would recommend investing in some grippers. You can go on ironmind.com, and they have, I believe, at least a dozen levels of grip training. When you've reached the 12th, you are essentially at the level of a competitive strongman. That's my best advice on that. Uh, favorite warrior culture to study and read about. Uh, this uh, this is again another cliche. Um, I'm trying lately actually to read about Basque warriors. Um, there isn't much literature in English about it. Um, my understanding is that they were fierce warriors and that they repelled Romans. They repelled, um, I believe it was the Umayyad Caliphate that was the Muslim Caliphate that took over most of Spain with the exception of northern Spain, so not Galicia, not uh, Catalonia, not El País Vasco, meaning the Basque country. 
So I'm 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 trying to study more um the warrior culture of the Basques, but it's going to take me learning both Spanish and Basque itself, which is going to take some time because it's the most difficult language to learn uh, due to syntax, um, Basque warriors. But my favorite warrior culture at the moment is that of the samurai. It's, it's very cliche, but the code of Bushido and seeing the different ages <clears throat> of, of the different ages and different roles of samurai, whether it be serve the emperor or serving local shoguns, or being primarily duelists, or being primarily ronin, seeing the different ages of samurai, and seeing their code of Bushido growing, but typically being unwavering in terms of balancing oneself. It's like being the most violent, most intense, most brutal warrior, but then practicing arts as delicate as origami, and haiku, and gardening, and carpentry, as a way of balancing oneself so that man does not become truly insane and man does not become completely an animal so the Basques personally for the sake of learning about my ancestry but my favorite and I, I will imagine that it will remain my favorite is that of the samurai the number four is smoking cigarettes low testosterone or high testosterone cigars is overindulgence a low tea trait thanks for your opinion um well, I'll start by saying smoking cigarettes and smoking cigars looks pretty badass. I'm not going to lie. My father will occasionally smoke a Cuban cigar. Uh, in terms of cigarettes, yeah, I mean, it looks just to say, oh, I don't care and smoke a cigarette. Yeah, I guess it's very high testosterone to not care about, you know, health and do it anyway and look cool and indulge in something. Um, but long-term indulgence is a path to destruction, so... It's temporarily high tea. I mean, I've seen Muay Thai fighters, you know, drink like fish and smoke like chimneys and then train for five hours. That looks very high testosterone. That, that makes overindulgence look high, high testosterone, but it wouldn't look high testosterone if they were fat and wheezing and then had their health deteriorating. So they had that counterbalance of intense training. So I would say it depends. I know that's sort of a half answer, but it depends on context. Short term, yeah, it's high tea. Long term, without checking it and balancing it, it's horrendously low T because you're going to be a shell of yourself as a man. Number six, favorite historical strategist and why? How do you apply these concepts to your daily life? I would say my favorite historical strategist is Hannibal Barca. For those of you who are not familiar, Hannibal Barca was a Carthaginian general who in the Second Punic War, meaning the Three Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage, who were sort of the two surging city-states at the time in the Mediterranean, Carthage being in North Africa, which I believe is present-day Tripoli, um, and Rome, they had many skirmishes in the form of the Punic Wars. So you had the Roman navy who was coming to attack Carthage, and then you had the Roman army in Italy, assuming that the Carthaginian army is going to come from the south, come from the flatlands, is going to land with the help of their navy in southern Italy and march on Rome from the south. So the Roman army had fortified and planned for an attack from the south. Hannibal Barca, 
And, and the reason that Italy assumed the, that the attack would come from the south is because the north, they had the Alps. So to land, let's say, in the south of France, or perhaps Liguria, Italy, which is where Genoa is, and cross the Alps to get into Italy, they viewed as madness. To attack Rome from the north would be madness. Hannibal Barca said, well, they're likely not expecting madness, so why don't we go commit madness? Now, he looked at the necessary details and acquired the furs to keep his men warm in mountain climate when they were accustomed to a climate much closer to the equator, being from North Africa. And he led his men, in addition to 40 elephants, which was most likely this, on the spectrum of boldness and stupidity closer to the spectrum of stupidity of trying to lead elephants through alpine terrain but i believe something like uh with between 10 and 20 survived of the 40 so he he managed to get 15 elephants and all his troops to scale the alps to surprise rome and attack from the north and completely destroy the roman army by the way however he did not sack rome because admiral scipio scipio africanus of the roman navy had sailed right for Carthage and had beaten Hannibal to the punch. Now, sure, we can talk about, oh, Hannibal wasn't fast enough because Scipio beat him to the punch, but circling back to the original question of why Hannibal Barca is my favorite strategist and why, it's a very simple anti-fragile concept. They're not expecting this because of harsh conditions, and we're going to give them just that. It's boldness, it's grit, it's intensity... And it's throwing yourself in the deep end. And me personally, as I mentioned with the first podcast, that I had not planned, I just executed. I was going to make the strong choice. I was going to throw myself face first in the deep end and then figure out the nuances and strategies later. To me, that's the catalyst. That's how I apply that to my life. I moved to New York City by buying a ticket six weeks out and saving up accordingly. I decided that I was going to move to England at 19 years old at the time, with not very many, not an abundance of financial resources, I was going to move to a city that I had never been to to study acting at the highest level, or a part of the city I had never been to in London that I had never been to to study acting at the highest level. This is a Hannibal Barca mindset. This is a face-first mindset. This is, I will endure, I will grow accordingly, and I will plan long-term based on these new growths that I've achieved through going face first, through being bold, through doing things most would not. So it's less nuanced strategy, but it's more grand concept laced with the caveat that the details and the strategy will come. That's how I view Hannibal Barca, and that's how I apply him to my life. Number 10, sorry, number, let's see what number is this? Well, next question, having a structured routine when writing versus writing when the ideas come. So this will sort of build on the Q&A last week of writer's block. And in terms of grand strategy, as I've mentioned today throughout this entire podcast, I mentioned last week that in planning my book, I had made the mistake of just scheduling writing sessions where I'd write as much as possible. And I found that 
I would be burning out because I didn't really know what the goal for the day's writing was. I didn't know where I wanted to finish. I was just writing in oblivion. And that wasn't the most effective. So I divided all the chapters that I had planned into bits. And I had scheduled bits for each day leading up to a deadline. Um, so for the balance of opposites, which has been the entire theme of this podcast... It's also the tagline of Ruka Sport, Ruka Gym. Phenomenal surfing and MMA brand and MMA gym in Southern California. The balance of opposites in this regard is to craft a plan, to be an architect, to have a plan of writing. But if you're at a time of the day where you have this set plan that you plan on executing, but if let's say you get out of the shower and it wasn't exactly time to write and you have spare time, by all means, write right away, write until the idea is complete or the idea fades away and then apply it back to your plan. So have that baseline plan and have that override of when the idea comes to me, I'm going to write it and then I'll apply it to the plan later. Circles back to Hannibal Barca as I just mentioned as well. Okay, next question. Favorite author and why? How have they influenced your own writing? This is probably the most difficult question to answer. Um, you know, I'll stick to fiction as opposed to nonfiction because nonfiction typically deals with concepts themselves as a trade or history itself as a trade, but it always goes back to concepts. Whereas fiction has to more beautifully weave concepts in the form of narrative. So, to throw okay to throw out some names off the top of my head, uh, of course Hemingway, uh, Thoreau, Fitzgerald, Frank Herbert, Samuel Beckett, Kenzo Budo Oe, of how. Yeah, this is this is this is not a question I was truly prepared for. Um, you know what? I'll, I'll I'll just go with my favorite author of my favorite book, and I have a long list of favorites. But ironically, the book that I don't relate to at all on a personal level is my favorite book, and that's The Great Gatsby. I don't relate to the characters, the pretty little fool aspects of Daisy, the sort of pie-in-the-sky initial self-loathing of Jay Gatsby. It, it really, to me, comes into Fitzgerald's technique for portraying longing and anguish and intensity. The, the, the essences, the emotions, the circumstances... The severity of it all just bleeds off of the page and hits you right in the face. So I'm not going to say he's my favorite author because I don't really think I have a favorite author. But if I were to pick a favorite book, it'd be that. If I were to pick a counterbalance favorite book, it would be Dune by Frank Herbert. Now Dune touches subjects of religion, touches subjects of strategy, touches subjects of morality, of metaphysics. 
And he weaves these things more subtly for it to be more powerful. So to answer your question, I'll say my two favorite authors, it's a tie between F. Scott Fitzgerald and Frank Herbert. They have, now that I think about it, they have the sort of completely opposite ends of writing. Fitzgerald writes grand, writes in a grandiose manner for smaller circumstances, whereas Frank Herbert writes in a much more subtle, nuanced manner for these plots of grandeur, these otherworldly plots like in Dune. They influence my writing in many ways. You'll, you'll, see, you'll see chapters where I'm writing with such intensity. You'll, 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 get to, you'll get to read these chapters when the book is published in the third quarter of this year. But you'll also see this sort of um, ambiguity, this purposeful ambiguity being thrown. I'm not going to give you all the answers. I'm going to be more subtle. I'm going to be more nuanced. That comes from Frank Herbert. So in conclusion, Frank Herbert and F. Scott Fitzgerald. I would highly recommend all of their works. What do I feel about Buddhism is the next question. Um, so I myself am primarily Orthodox Christian. I won't get into why, what I mean primarily right now. That's for another time and another podcast. Um, in terms of Buddhism, I'm not really one to knock anyone's sort of belief system or religion so you're not going to hear a whole lot of you know sort of cons about buddhism there's a lot of wisdom within buddhism there's a lot of practical bits of wisdom that can be applied to -to day-to-day life and i can see why many people who are sort of dabbling in belief systems would go to buddhism if these things are bringing people a higher life, a more moral life, a more honorable life, I am very much pro-Buddhism. We, we could talk about afterlife till kingdom come right now, but that's not what I'm on this podcast to debate at the moment. So I think Buddhism, for the most part, is a very beneficial thing. I would recommend people actually understand Buddhism as a, as a whole. You'll see a lot of sort of... West Coast hippie yogis briefly quote Buddha and speak of Buddhism, but they're not really Buddhists. They're like sort of... It's, it's, it's almost like being a Christmas and Easter only Christian. It's where like you go to, you know, midnight mass on Christmas, you go to Easter service, and then you're Christian. No, kind of. I would recommend diving face first into Buddhism as opposed to just taking each individual idea and being satisfied with that. I think there's a lot of positives, and I think it can be very positive, and I think it has been very positive for many. Next question, what is a simple way to connect with Source, God, Buddha? Uh, this, is, this, is, this one's very simple, to answer a request for a simple way. Um, whether this be in nature or in your house, or let's say you're in a noisy urban environment, put in headphones of calm, collective music if you're in a noisy environment. But if you can get to a quiet environment, whether that be in nature or whether that be in a quiet home, embrace the silence, close your eyes, check in with yourself, connect with yourself until you're fully present. You're not scatterbrained. You're not thinking about the grocery list. You're not thinking about Netflix. You're not thinking about that text you need to respond to. Connect with yourself first. 
so that way you can connect to God. Or whatever it is that you believe in. You cannot be right yourself. You cannot truly be centered without performing that work. You can't be centered to connect fully to God, Buddha, slash the source, as you've listed and stated, without being centered, without being calm, without being present. This is not something that can be scatterbrained. You can be connected throughout the day. You can be in a hyper-focused state while being in a meditative state. That is certainly possible. That is certainly something that can be achieved and I have achieved personally. However, initial connection, let's say for the morning or for evening prayers, that's the course of action I would recommend. The next question. Tips for growing taller. Okay, this question I found very interesting. Um, So I had come across, uh, back in 2012... A YouTube channel called Grow Taller Guru. And he was this uh, gentleman who claimed that he was 5'7". And through this sort of regimen that he grew to be 6'2". And I felt this, I I found this kind of fascinating, but I didn't find it fascinating enough to execute. And I'm about 6'1". So I don't really, I didn't didn't really feel like this longing need to, you know, be 6'6". Although sometimes I dream of fighting heavyweight, which I would need to be 6'6", but that's besides the point. Um, so I looked up an article, and you can check this out online. I'll, in fact, I will um, I'll link this to the episode of the podcast, and I'll, I'll shoot a DM to the person who asked this, asked this question. There's a website called naturalheightgrowth.com, and it sort of breaks down the science of height growth. And it label it's it states some people who use the Grow Taller Guru Lance Ward's program do seem to increase in height and grow taller. A full explanation, and they give you a scientific breakdown. Uh, I won't get into that right now. It's a very long article, and there's a lot of subtle nuances, and there's some scientific terminology that I myself am not fully familiar with. So I would be speaking upon something that I don't fully understand. So I'll defer to that uh, that resource and that material. That you can check out for yourself. Godspeed. Question number twelve: the best mental toughness advice. Uh, my, I'll, I'll be very simple with this. Uh, the best mental toughness advice is to willingly throw yourself into anti-fragile situations. So it's almost like crafting anti-fragile situations. Let's say, oh, I don't really have a bit of hardship. I don't have any new randomness. Go throw yourself in a situation where you're uncomfortable. For some of you, that might be, oh, you know, I'm a big, you know, I'm more of a strength guy. I'm more of a bodybuilding guy. Yeah, go for an eight-mile run. See what happens. See where your mind goes. You'll find yourself seeing that your body hasn't really been designed to do this. And you need to start to rely on your mind. Cultivating mental toughness usually isn't far away from discomfort. Sleep in a park in the cold. Take a freezing cold shower. Go swimming in the ocean. Eat scant food. Do a 36-hour fast, a 48-hour fast. Do things that make you uncomfortable. And then press into that stimulus. Resist that stimulus with your mind. That's the best mental toughness advice I can give you. Because it's practical and you can do it right now. 
And the last question. Tips for someone who wants to start down a path of blood and rain, but hasn't. Now, let me start by saying I'm honored that you would sort of call this, this essence I've been talking about a path. Because I haven't really thought about that. I haven't really thought about this as a path for others. I've just thought about this as an essence that is authentic to myself, that is manifested, that I felt a need to speak about in the form of a podcast for the sake of my fellow man. But to call this as a path, I am deeply honored, so thank you. So for those of you who want to start down this path, um, let, me, let, me, let me preface by saying I'm, I, I've seen some other people on Instagram sort of start somewhat cultish paths. Um, no one I've mentioned on this podcast before, to be abundantly clear. But whenever you see someone who sort of says, this is the only way to success, um... I wholeheartedly disagree with that. There's always more than one path up the mountain. So I'm not saying this is the only way, and I'm not looking to sort of lead some form of... sort of culty belief system, to be abundantly honest. I'm here merely to share resources and share knowledge and help foster my fellow man in any way that I can. Now, to call this essence that I'm doing it through blood and rain a path, that's fine. I won't say this is the only path to greatness, because it's not. But to start down the path... I think one has to declare it to themselves. And that's something I certainly did. One of my favorite fighters who I posted for this week's Muay Thai Monday, Nathan Carnage Corbett. An illustrious... Australian light heavyweight and heavyweight 10-time world champion Muay Thai fighter. He spoke about a time where he started to figure out his identity and he was going to declare to himself his identity as a fighter, that he was going to be a fighter who finished fights. He was going to be a finisher. He declared this to himself. Rituals are abundantly important in life. Without them, life is meaningless and life is one droning sort of flow. Rituals are milestones. Rituals cultivate presence. Rituals help you orient on life. Now, in terms of the detailed essence of blood and rain itself, I'm going to have to get back to you on that. Because I've spoken about the essence. I've spoken about my life. I've spoken about mental toughness. I've spoken about today what I believe to be a baseline of stoicism and an override of anti-fragility for the sake of grand strategy, for the sake of becoming your greatest self, your greatest renaissance man self, your highest self. I've spoken on these things as part of the essence of blood and rain, but in terms of a path, I'm going to have to meditate on that and answer this as a two-part question next week, but for now, For this week. Go somewhere that means something to you. Preferably somewhere away from your home. Whether it be nature or a monument of great work locally, you know, whether it be a statue or a church or a building that you admire. Be silent. 
meditate, center yourself. And declare to yourself, as Nathan Carnage Corbett declared to himself that he would be a knockout artist. Be you would finish fights. And that's what he did. Declare to yourself that you will start down this path. Your path, specifically. This path of blood and rain. This plat this path of never settling. This path of giving everything you have into the last breath. This path of striving unceasingly to be the greatest, highest version of yourself. Declare to yourself that you will start this path of blood and rain. This is the only way it can truly start. Because a start without meaning is not a start at all. Folks, this podcast, so far, we're only three episodes in now. But it has truly been an honor. I, I know I sort of I say something like this every single week. But I get very excited throughout the week planning these podcasts. I get very... I feel very fulfilled when I receive your feedback, your, both your constructive criticism and your positive feedback. I feel encouraged seeing the amount of downloads. I feel very moved and I feel honored that you are all tuning in. The rest of the podcasts for the quarter are planned. Next week, we're going to have our first guest. Stay tuned on Instagram and in Telegram to see who that guest is. We're going to be hearing his perspective as a surging young masculine content creator, echoing many of the same ideas that you hear on this podcast and see on the various mediums of Blood and Rain. I'm very excited for you all to meet him. I'm very excited. For you to hear what he has to say. And I'm very excited for you to hear his perspective on the questions that you're going to be submitting within the next week. So until then, good night and good storms. Thank you.